As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. Hi, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good, because every year dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them, but with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly, so get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. This is Rebecca Solnit talking about hashtag MeToo. If the right to speak, if having credibility, if being heard is a kind of wealth, that wealth is now being redistributed. There has long been an elite with audibility and credibility, an underclass of the voiceless. As the wealth is redistributed, the stunned incomprehension of the elites erupts over and over again, a fury and disbelief that this woman or child dared to speak up, that people deigned to believe her, that her voice counts for something. Our voice is a reflection of our life experience, where we've been and who we've listened to. But we can also own it and even change it if we want. This is the podcast that's all about the voice, but it's also all about power who has it, how we get it, and how we sound when we have it. I'm Samara Bay. I'm a dialect coach for actors in Hollywood on projects like the upcoming Wonder Woman sequel. And I'm also a speech coach for entrepreneurs, politicians, creatives, and women everywhere who need to use their voice to get what they want. Welcome to Permission to Speak. Let's do this. Today's guest is Steph Green. She is a director for television and film. In fact, one of her first films, a short, in 2007, got an Oscar nomination right out of the gate. And she's gone on to direct film and many, many episodes of television. She did Billions. She did The Americans, Man in the High Castle, an episode of Watchmen, The L Word, which we talk about in this interview. So she's had to use her voice to lead. And this is why I really wanted to have her on. The culture that she's doing it in is totally unique, you know, hashtag set life. But there's lessons for all of us. What's crazy about the Hollywood aspect of it is that when you're directing on set, things move super fast. There are no walls to your office. There's a massive amount of money on the line and hundreds of people's jobs. You often have to decide things on the fly based on gut instinct. And there's a real but often unlabeled and like completely nebulous hierarchy of power players whose interests you have to juggle or everyone will mutiny. 
HR isn't a thing, and it's also deeply male-dominated. And within that, you have to make decisions and make art. Anyway, I have gotten to see her work firsthand because I dialect coached on a show that she directed, and I am very excited to be able to bring the magic I saw then to you guys now. Here's Steph. <laughs> Steph, it's such a pleasure Hi, to have you here. Pleasure to be here. I remember when I was um, had the honor of being a dialect coach on a Steph Green set for the TV show Preacher, like two years ago in New Orleans. It was great. And you called me part of the mind meld tier. It was <laughs> such a, I mean, you know, obviously. You were. I've been in a lot of sets. I mean, every director deals with the dynamic of collaboration on a set differently. I have noticed almost exclusively the women are the ones who are most open to, like, turning around to the people who sit behind them in Video Village and actually using those resources. That's interesting. Your position of that close observation of the director is very—I mean, it's really producers, script supervisor, and a very select few that are sitting that close to the director on set. That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, for anybody you know? listening, Video Village is where the video monitors are set up that we're watching the action happen for every single take. And yeah, the front row is usually the director and the script supervisor who keeps track of continuity, you know, take by take by take. And then hovering around there is often a writer or often a producer. And then the strange other person who somehow <laughs> gets gets her way in is the dialect coach. Because really, we are working pretty intimately with the actors and with everybody trying to make sure that the story is being told with both the sounds and also literally the words. And I find that that's a sacred space. That's my office. That's all of our mm. offices on set. And yeah. though many different crew members may come up to you as a director and ask a question, or you may need something and go talk to them— of the hundred people on set, there are generally four or five people in that little office looking at that screen. And what I loved about having you there and what I love about having that coach there is they are scrutinizing what's happening on screen with performances the same way I am. You know, I'm looking at other things too, but I like the partnership of someone else squinting, you know, in this focused way at that screen, that little monitor that's that's giving us everything, all the results of all the hard work mm. that's happening on that set, you know, that capturing ultimately in the editing room, that's what you got. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. And I, I appreciate all the levels of collaboration. You wanted to talk about communication. Maybe we start with set and we can kind of sure. talk out from there. But that's what I was thinking about on the way here. I was thinking about communication on set and sort of energetically how you are balancing your very careful position of power and leadership with the fact that you need every single individual on that set to be helping you at one time, you know, and you're looking at them, They're, you're with them, you're in contact with them. I can imagine in other industries, someone from down in another department may be doing something for you, but you may never interact with them. I mean, literally, you just referenced Video Village as your office, but it has no walls. Exactly. Exactly. So you are learning daily and for me, attempting to improve communication with such a diverse and constantly fluid group of people, a lot of people. So how do you create a shorthand? I mean, that is where where prep is so important because prep is where you are working with heads of department, which would be like costume design, production designer, makeup and hair, and you are establishing the shared vision ahead of time. 
you know, getting onto the same page as all your heads of department, that's your like board meeting, I mm. guess, that you're in for prep. And then I find like really learning who their departments are, who are their key people, who are they being supported by? And knowing those names, I mean, that's a huge thing. And mm -hmm. that, names are really hard for me. And it's something I'm really working on. You know, being able to look at someone in the eyes, say their name, and then of course say thank you or ask your question or listen to their contribution, like step one. Right. And learning a hundred names quickly is a thing. And, you know, we talk about it at some of the producers I work with. We always are like, should we put name tags on the first mm -hmm. couple of weeks of working together? But, and I, I'm for it because I think we're, we're moving so quickly. That's the other thing. We're moving so fast. So I think about communication, but I was also sort of driving here thinking, I think about how I listen and then how it is a demand of the job to be decisive and yeah, supportive. Because that's what I'm with thinking that of information. You're you're listening, but you're also not just saying yes to everybody. You can't. You can't because they have conflicting ideas. Sometimes you know, one department thinks one way, one department yeah, thinks another. Yeah, you're moderating as well. Yeah, and you have your own vision mediating. that you're trying to bring to the table, elevating uh, shaping the show, shaping the storytelling. So can you talk about a moment when you actually have to be decisive and it's going to make somebody frustrated? Right. You know, it's, it's interesting because you have to understand and anticipate and know them well enough to understand how that disappointment hmm. works for them. Mm -hmm. And because it is such compressed time, I do feel that it's incredibly important to acknowledge what they are bringing, what they have done, how they are guiding the decision-making and that, in fact, their contribution, even though I may not see it that way, has helped me clarify how I do see it. And I think that making sure that you're you're gracious about that and you're acknowledging of that, that that idea is really valuable here. Where people start to collapse is when they feel their ideas aren't valuable. Mm. And it's a really fine line because you need to make those decisions quickly. I just snapped at the microphone. Mm -hmm. Sorry, mm -hmm. microphone. Mm -hmm. You need to make those decisions so quickly that people can get, it can get very personal very quickly. And then, you know, you find yourself going, oh, I think somebody might be offended there. And then I, and then I'm trying to fix that. But we don't, we don't always have time, you know, so it's, it's it, that's why it's a tough industry. Totally. Tough to create trust, tough to not take things personally. And everybody in every department from you know, the set to the makeup to the dialect coach, like we're there because we're obsessed with the thing that we're there for. Mm -hmm. And ideally also have a sense of the whole, but not always, you know? Well, it's the, kind of our yeah. job to be weirdly obsessed with the one thing that we're there for. Absolutely. And then I think the director's job in, in many situations is the inclusivity of all, right? So bringing your particular passion to the whole. And I enjoy that. I like that because I'm surrounded by creative artists who are passionate. What you're painting the picture of is leadership, right? I mean, that's what we're really talking about here. And leadership in, I don't know, I guess a more stereotypically female way entails that there is a sense of empowering other people, that they're making them feel appreciated, that you're making sure that they feel like they have a voice. And then ultimately decisions have to be made. And so, you know, you can't obviously make everybody happy in every moment, no. but hopefully you're making them happy overall because they feel like they're part of something bigger. Exactly. And I've I've been fortunate to work for men who operated exactly that way too, you know, and those have been guides for me as well. And, you know, I've been working in television for four years straight. That is crazy because it seems like longer and also because you're doing amazing work. Thank you. The majority of, of who I've worked for and with are men. And on great projects, the Americans, Watchmen, Billions, I mean, just robust, fantastic storytelling. 
of late, there are more women to work for in drama, which is exciting. And these last two pilots were with women, with uh, Gina Fattori, Megan Abbott on Dare Me, and then Marja Lewis-Ryan on Hellward. So it's very exciting. And it is interesting to be working with women who I think do have, in general, an eye towards hiring more women Mm -hmm. and diversifying, Mm -hmm. and then working with, you know, traditionally, or I'm generalizing, but, you know, more feminine traits. Sure. I think they do show up. What do you mean? Well, nurturing. And I think there's all sides to that. That can mean, you know, like you said, ultimately you can't make everyone happy, mm-hmm. right? And women have to really, I think, stick to our guns in a way that, in a, in a way that's still challenging because we we haven't always been given the opportunity to be the final word on things, the yeah. absolutely final word. The buck stops here. This woman is fully in charge of this project. Right. So I feel like I, a lot of our new. skills that we've, by we, no. I mean like the, the the ancestors of us, yeah, have developed our persuasion skills. Yes. Because we're not the final say. That's right. And, you know, and maybe, and I'm still working with all of these ideas. This is yeah. all just part of, you know, kind of a learning curve. And, you know, I guess watching how women work with emotion differently because it's been a different kind of tool for us. Mm. I guess you could say the way you're saying persuasion is different. Really, it's about power. Where do we find our power in a landscape that has not doesn't entitle us to much power in certain environments? There's no assumption that we're going to have power. So how do we sit in our power? So how do you sit in your power stuff? <laughs> well, I'm working on that. You know, I'm watching women around me and I'm getting inspired and I'm. What do you notice? Ease. To be at ease with oneself and one's level of knowledge and experience, accepting there's, of course, room to grow, but sort of owning the hard work that one has done up until this point. And, you know, really, I guess it's a it's a cliche, less fear of failure, you know, sort of like, this is who I am, take me or leave me. I think that's been a scary thing for me because, you know, also, the, I mean, I guess this town can make you feel like, well, what do you need me to be right now? I'll be it. Yeah. Give me this opportunity. I'll be what you need me to be, you know, and I'm just getting older and working more. You start to think, well, you know, what can this do for me yeah. as an experience versus and all, and what, what can I do for them? And like, it's not just what projects are looking that I can fit myself into, but also what type of projects do I want to be? Exactly. That's a constant conversation internally and with with my peers. I think we're all figuring that out. And also like, the times continue to change. Absolutely. And it's so inspiring. I see things changing rapidly. You know, the type of artists that are being appreciated, the women coming into their power and starting to lead and support other women artists. And, you know, I think of Lena Waithe, like immediately. That's who's producing the show that I'm on right now. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, she took her success and now she is really making things happen. It's just incredibly inspiring. And I get really buzzed about that. Yeah, yeah. It feels like we're like, oh, there's a paradigm that could be shifting. Let's just um, nudge it to shift. Let's just shift it. Let's just do it. And let's do it consciously. And there's still a real problem. But I will say on the L word, Marja was incredibly adamant about diversity hiring. Marja is the showrunner? The showrunner. And showrunner for people listening means the person who's in charge of the writer's room? Yes, and more. And really the overall kind of boss mm-hmm. of the series at large. And and I'd be coming up with, and we can talk about prep and the, you know, what, what we're doing in prep, but I'd be coming up with sort of the visuals, 
you know, participation in casting, participation in everything that launches the world mm-hmm. that we're going to put this show in. Mm-hmm. But we were so interested in diversity as we were hiring, and we really confronted the lack everywhere. Uh, just of lists that would come to us from different, you know, it's that internal kind of Hollywood conversation, like where, and then we, but we found people and I saw it at work, you know, yeah. truly shifting the balance. And uh, I, I'm starting to see that more and more. I was reading from Lindy West's new book called The Witches Are Coming. And she has an essay about sort of the responsibility that Hollywood might or might not have after Weinstein. And what I love about it is that she's not actually just talking about in terms of hiring, but she's actually talking about the stories that we tell. Mm, yes. Let's talk um, about that. And so I'm going to read this quote of hers, and maybe we can talk about it. She says, to make that reckoning stick, the reckoning of the Me Too movement, we have to look ahead and ask ourselves what we want of this new Hollywood and look back to avoid repeating the past. Show business could very well help us get out of this mess, but not if we fail to examine how it helped us get into it. Hollywood is both a perfect and a bizarre vanguard in the war for culture change. Perfect because its reach is so vast, its influence so potent. Bizarre because television movies are how a great many toxic ideas embed themselves inside us in the first place. No matter how much lip service we pay to equality and progress, how many mantras about loving ourselves and one another, how many inspirational memes we churn out to counteract the message— The basest culture, the culture that sells, the culture we're used to, is still there on screen showing us how people are supposed to look and talk and fuck. Mm, That's great. Right? Yeah. And I I thought of you when I was reading that because of the projects that you're working on now. I mean, you just did Watchmen. You just did The L Word. It feels like this is the new vanguard. I mean, this is the attempt to say we can't just tell the same stories and make hiring different. I hope and— must believe that that's the case. And I am choosing projects with that in mind. What are we really saying here? And when I write somewhat, and when I think about what I want to write, I think about that. I've always thought about message and this denial that we do internalize these messages is, is like denying climate change. We do internalize what we see on these screens. This is our campfire now. This is the wisdom that is passed to us. From these screens. And I do feel responsibility. I also feel like when I give, I give 150% of myself. I want to believe that I'm putting something into the world that is good for humanity, is for positive growth in some way. You're not always right. You do your best <laughs> to feel that out, you know. But um, yeah, I really hope so. I hope that's right. And I mean, we still just have a long way to go to kind of recognize our shadow as a race, as yeah. a as humans. Yeah. Watchmen is really asking questions and Elward is really looking at shame and, you know, Dare Me is looking at, you know, sort of, I mean, Megan Abbott is brilliant in so many ways, but that feminism isn't just about heroic women. It's about all women. It's about flaw. It's about intent. It's about friendship and the flip side of friendship how women treat each other and, you know, it's it's everything. And also, like, what even is female heroism? Like, it, does it require that it's sort of that masculine sense of heroism where, still, like, one person is in charge of some revolution? That's right. That's right. What is female power? What does it look like? So what does it look like, Steph? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Obviously, it's sort of, a, it's it's comically too big of a question, but it is also literally the point of this podcast is what does female power look and sound like? I feel like we don't have um, 
it's not that there it isn't there, right? We 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 all have people in our own lives and people certainly that we can look at in Congress right now who are who are lighting the way. But we don't necessarily have like the language to sort of talk about it and the place to collect the stories. And there is this sort of modern notion. And I would love to ask that question to a 20-year-old. Yeah. You know, really. Oh, I will. Because please. Because I I know for me there was a there was a notion of I guess the powerful woman that was kind of the having it all, like Mm -hmm. a a little bit of the capitalist dream that we had with men in the 50s, right? That you would kind of come back from the war and get a house and get a wife and get two kids and have a great job and, you know, great vacations. And for my generation, it's like, you as a woman can have all that too. Mm -hmm. You can have the kids and the job and the And as I've worked in a career that is 14 hours a day, and I know you know the same, you know, you just start to go, well, actually, it's not all quite possible in the way I idealized it. And I actually feel exhausted and depleted, and I feel less empowered by all these things I'm trying to accomplish. So in a way, for me, it's self-realization, whatever that looks like for you, and getting away from a sort of social pressure, normalized, you know, heteronormal ideal that we have to realize we kind of inherited. It was, you can have it too. Right. What's it though right. for you? Right. And what was a response to like sort of elbowing our way in so that we could have the same dream the men were sold? <laughs> right. Although, you know, having a family and having a good job is sort of a, a general desire, of course. But I think I think I think a lot about that. And, and women I admire are sort of, seem to be structuring all that for themselves, truly for themselves, to self-realize what they really want, which could be not having it all or what or def- total definition of what it all is. Right. There's a woman I grew up with who, you know, I think she volunteered abroad, like she stayed abroad, she still works in, like, you know, th- just defining success for yourself and power. This feels like it's really about giving ourselves permission to look at what the rules are that we were handed down and say, like, who created these rules? What if we break them? A, what do we want? But B, can we get it by, like, putting a critical eye on those things that seemed like they were hard and fast rules? I mean, from the vast, like you're talking about in terms of how we structure our lives and whether or not we go for, you know, trying to buy a house in this amazing <laughs> L.A. climate um, and having children and all these massive questions. But also just the tiny, the tiny things like literally how much emotion are we allowed to bring into work? I was just going to say, I think we got kind of macro there, but ultimately, yeah, it's like there's almost like I feel like sometimes we feel tripwires, right? Like I can be powerful in this way, but I can't be powerful in this way. For example, anger, mm-hmm. like anger just we don't really get to be angry, or at least that's, again, I don't give myself permission to be angry. That cuts off a whole range of feelings. And then we're sort of, we're just perpetuating that a woman can be a great leader, but if she gets angry once, she's crazy. But I think using anger for focus, for fire, for passion, directing different emotional range to your purpose, you know, we were encouraged in some ways and we're discouraged and we've been discouraged in so many ways from young ages. I mean, from a young age, I was told I'll be a great mom. So straight to nurturing Mm. and, you know, certain kinds of outbursts just did not look good on me, did not look good on a girl. Right. Right. And I just, I think they're seen as power. They can be seen as power 
in young boys and as really disturbing in young girls. Okay, we're going to talk more about this coming up. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey, everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss a common mistake that a lot of people do. They use fabric softener when it's not so great for your clothes. Should we never be using fabric softener? No, you should not ever be using fabric softener. It leaves a deposit on our clothes, which is also left in the machine. And it also makes the clothes highly flammable. Wait, what? (laughs) Yes. What you want to do instead is just use a quarter cup of vinegar. And that'll make them softer? That'll make them softer. And if you wanted some kind of scent, you can use essential oils. Wow, wow, wow. Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> Ooh. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yemi's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Yes. Okay. So we're <laughs> so we're back. Um, we were just talking during uh, a little break about um, the reality of how impossible this is. I mean, the, the quote unquote double bind of like you have to be strong, but you have to be likable. It shows up in in these ways where we can all say, as women who are finding our way into power, late thirties, early forties, whatever, we're maybe moms for the first time, we're maybe leaders for the first time, and we're saying like, oh, fuck, now my version of leadership, what's it going to sound like? What rules can I truly break? Because I'm in the position where like, I can fucking break them mm. and I and I won't, you know, there won't be repercussions. And then there are. Yeah. I mean, people get fired in this town all the time. Yeah. And I have found, and I, my question to you, I guess, is here's a way that a stereotype tends to show up for female directors. There's a lot of middle-aged I'm just going to say schlubby white men who hang out on sets because they have their whole lives and it's an entire department of, say, three or four people who are all the description I just gave and who have never, by the women in their lives or by their work context, been asked to become more evolved as time moves forward. Yes, I hear you. And then female directors end up on their shows. Right. And they have really basic level, like, she's going to mess it up mm-hmm. opinions. Mm-hmm. And then they're just True. looking for the confirmation that their worldview doesn't need to evolve. Yeah. I mean, the the only thing I'll say is I that is going to change, and that is changing. 
And I now go to interviews or pitches or, you know, think about how I would hire. And I think we are thinking about where will I find as a female director a great deal of support for the whole me? Hmm. You know, the me that has the vision, the collaborator me, the me that's going to get frustrated, the me that's going to, but God, am I going to do my best? At, at every turn. But can I also do that while taking care of myself? And I think there are more and more of us getting in and there are more and more of us looking for that environment and then looking to create that environment. It's like it's really the new Hollywood is less about hiring individuals who look or define themselves a certain way and more about hiring people regardless of how they look or who they are who are going to enter into it with a sense of good faith trust, and who want to bring like their masculine and feminine energies in equally, who are interested in like not cutting off parts of themselves. That's right. And I think that is generationally just the, you know, the the sort of stereotypical, you know, Teamster dude. I mean, I love Teamsters, but, and they're all actually, many of them are very evolved. But as you say, that, that guy with all those sexist views, who's going to, you know, set, uh, set himself up to believe that the female director that comes on set is going to fail He's aging out right now. So we can only hope. I'm trying to not like have a celebratory look on my face (laughs) because they are humans too and they are products of their- They are products. We cannot make it personal about anybody because everyone is a product of how they've been, you know, socialized by the industry. So speaking of, what a segue. Tell me about your socialization. No, tell me about your upbringing. In terms of finding your voice, you- decided pretty early on to be a director. You went to film school in your 20s. What did that look like in terms of knowing what you wanted to do and how you wanted to lead? I was always bossy. I was a big sister. I'm a Leo. You know, all Mm -hmm. those ingredients, Mm -hmm. right? But I, I don't think I saw a lot of women leaders early on. It's like the, you know, the typical story. I was in the drama program at high school. Mm -hmm. My teacher was female. She saw something in me and my ability to to sort of block and plan short plays. Mm. So I entered Northwestern as a theater major to maybe direct, maybe stage manage. I didn't know what what exactly I wanted to do. And I didn't even realize you could study film and television. And then I studied film. I, I transferred over and I first I produced and I I, I killed myself raising money mm. for a music video that a guy got to direct. Ooh. And I watched him direct and I watched the choices he was making with, you know, kind of the hard earned backbreaking <laughs> support we had all yeah. given him. Yeah. And I just felt kind of bummed out and I felt a little bit betrayed by the process. You know, I felt like, gosh, you know, I worked so hard. I don't feel like he cares at all about what I have to say. And I don't know if I believe in this vision that were what a great on. moment. I mean, what a shitty moment in the moment. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was the best what a, in a way that that's why the worst things, I mean, not that that was the worst thing that got, but it yeah. was, you know, the 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 things you realize you don't want to do are very valuable, especially as a young person. So then I decided I wanted to be a director, but I was always apprehensive about the industry, the Hollywood industry. And it's part of why I really developed this independent filmmaker career and I stayed in Ireland for so long. I just felt more support, autonomy, kind of intimacy and trust with the people I was working with. And so I kept making work over there It's so really inter- long time. It is really interesting because I, I also feel like I've felt a very strong pull with this podcast to specifically, at least for now, focus on American culture. Mm. And, you know, 
a a solution for handling the, you know, flaws of American culture is certainly to be like, see ya. <laughs> see you later. And I also would come back here and kind of, and I would get discouraged. Even after the Oscar nomination in 2008, I came to LA and had meetings. They were all with men, producers. And I mean, it wasn't even gendered in my mind. I just did not feel a great deal of hope or inspiration when I would kind of drop into LA and look around. What did those meetings entail? I mean, what was your experience? My experience of them was the feeling of it's not enough. You're not enough Mm. yet kind of thing. Come Mm -hmm. back when you have your Sundance film. (laughs) Come back when you have the next thing. Oscar nomination. Yeah. Well, it was a short, I guess, which I told myself. Also, it was before this moment, you know, where, where now I think if you, you know, if you were here trying to be a female director for the past 15 years, you get to talk a lot more than I do about the real struggle. Right. You know, the real the real struggle that nobody would address, that you knocked on doors, that you kept coming at it. And if you're working now, that is so correct and I, and keep going. You know, and I, I want for those women to really get what they've been waiting for and deserve because I sort of was not, I didn't expose myself to it. I, I wasn't. Well, it sounds like you kind of saw the writing on the wall when you had those meetings. And you're I mean, like, this doesn't seem like a path. Yeah, I loved the country I was in. I felt supported. And, you know, I came when I was ready. And I came at a time where television is just exploding. And I found my place in it. I mean, television is a great place to cultivate your leadership because you are suddenly working with new people every couple months, potentially, mm-hmm. with incredible scope, budget, and responsibility. So yeah, you snap into, let's do this right, you know. Whether you're dealing with difficult personalities or you're just having to be decisive and you don't know the decision yet, what's your personal way of sort of shutting out the noise and figuring out what you want? I guess there's two ways my process works. One is intuitive decision-making. Like you just got to feel it and go because you are, you literally have two minutes to make the, the decision. Right. And um, that means literally listening to something that isn't your brain. Yes, exactly. You just sort of feel something and it probably is your brain. It's your, it's your, you know, it's your synapses that like know what to do. Totally. And I think I love directing in part because I like that um, flow, that creative flow where things just feel like they're just coming. You don't know where from, but they're coming. Mm. And then the other side, I plan and visualize and research a lot so that when, I'm uh, a lot of new ideas are coming at me. I sort of have my my firm center and I can sort of weigh those ideas against what I'm thinking or with what I'm thinking. And do they support? Do they confuse? I mean, a lot of um, a lot of storytelling for me is whose perspective is this? Even though that's a really cool shot idea, you know, DPs are famously will pitch you these like, okay, we come up over the building and we swoop down and you know, and it's kind of, I feel like my job to go, whose perspective are we and what are we feeling while that's happening? Mm. Or are we just feeling the exhilaration of the shot, which sometimes is is great, but it's that, it's that emotional mind. It's the storytelling mind. It's continually taking it back to those questions, which, which is, I'm sure a lot of what you do in that an actor may obsess over saying a syllable or a vowel correctly, and you may take them back to a story place. And ultimately, everyone kind of wants to be in that story place. 100%. That character place. Like my favorite example of that is that, especially English as a second language actors, which I work with a lot, will have will have noticed that, like, for example, the word what 
do we have do we use it here don't we Amer- right. we americans quote unquote right what what Right? They're both options. And they'll say, do I put a T on that or don't I? And I'm like, depends. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What's at stake? And I think it is also the argument for an idea that you can't debate. So let's say everyone's, people are coming at you with ideas. If you say, no, I don't want that. That's not what I want. Okay. That doesn't add anything to the conversation. It doesn't, people just feel denied. And that's where disappointment sets in, like we were talking about earlier. Mm. If I say... I love that idea, but I feel like the character would be coming actually because they'd be coming from the outside in. Let's have that first action be this taking off the jacket, whatever. Mm. You know, it's like yeah. you you ground back to character and story. You're also showing your work when you're thinking that out loud. Yes. You know? Yes. And so they there's trust that's built. For and sure. Then, and then they when they do the same thing, I like, I love nothing more than a props person coming to me and saying, I know this is what's in the script, but I did all this research and this is actually the item. You're such a nerd. You know. It's great. And that's their contribution. You know, and I think if I expect to be listened to Mm -hmm. for the depth of my research, knowledge, intuition, instincts, I have to do the same when there's time in prep, you know, (laughs) and we can can really weigh things up. Yeah. But I I do notice, I'm just going to bring it back to, I know what your, your expertise, which is that I have, I will stop breathing. I can, I'll notice that I haven't taken a deep breath in like four hours on set. My voice will get high if I'm emotional, you know, and and then, but then in trying to control that, you get more tight. Mm -hmm. So I I think all these things are fascinating in relationship to power, articulation and communication, because these things only work when I have a somewhat even keel emotionally. Yeah. I have to stay in that emotionally balanced place to be able to communicate authentically like that. Yeah. And part of the depletion and fatigue is when I'm doing all that, but I'm actually feeling so much more. And also, how do you listen? I mean, going back to thing number one, right? How do you listen to your instincts when you've sort of cut yourself off from them? Totally. Either because 14-hour days do do a number on you in terms of sleep and all of that stuff, but also literally in the moment, if the stakes feel too high and your body is responding to the stakes and not to the content. That's right. And where's the effort? The effort should be, you know, in the creativity piece and the story piece and, you know, thoughtful planning. But the effort sometimes is just in holding back the slew of true emotion that you're feeling. Mm. Uh, or I guess passion, fire, all these things. You know, that balance is part of the dance. In the sort of advice place that we're at right now, tell me about how you prepare a pitch. Because whether it's for a pilot of a TV show or it's for a product or it's for an idea to your boss. You know, a lot of us find ourselves in positions where we have to do that, um, where we have to say, like, here's my take on a thing. Take me seriously. And also I'm flexible. And also, you know, oh, yeah. I'm a Talk I'm an authority dan- figure, but Talk also I'm open. Yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking of this. But dancing is a good metaphor mm-hmm. in a way or a visual because— are you dancing for you or them? Mm-hmm. You know, you have to first, I think, really, really read the script, look at the project, look at your, if you're selling a project, watch it in your mind, totally for you. Like truly, what are you, what are you going to do with this? What do you want to do with this? What do you want to see? How would you want to make it before you even start thinking about what they want to hear? 
Mm. or what they need to hear Mm -hmm. or how you need to present. And that is a tricky balance. I think I often am jumping back and forth to, okay, well, I see see it this way. They they would maybe want to hear it this way. But I- This is so valuable because I often think about how sometimes what stops us from really finding sort of the joy in the fire is that we are thinking too much, How what do they think of me? And use, it's useful to think, what do they really need? And what how am I bringing what they need? But you're reminding me that there's this first part, which is also, what is the pleasure that this is for me? You absolutely have to think about all that. What do they need to hear? How do they need to hear it? But that's not the first yeah. step. And it's really easy to forget. I'm saying it because I'm constantly mm-hmm. reminding myself of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think also any writer will say, you know, they first have to go to a very safe space for themselves to really create the material in relationship with themselves. You know, that is just the first step. So, you know, giving yourself the kind of gift of your own very internal process first creatively, first and foremost, then, then yes, it's like, okay, how do I, and it's, you know, once you have that and that feels very firm and strong, it's, it's so much easier to think about how to present it. Right. Because if you were doing a book report and you had the book already, you could start to figure out how to present that book report because the book is there. Right. Right. I mean, the whole point of communication is that there's another person or there's another mass of people or something. So to say that, wait, the first step of communication is actually our relationship with ourself. Yes. That's pretty valuable. I think so. I want to go into a room and I want to communicate back that I, that I really feel and see the story. And here's what I Either if I'm reading a script, here's what I do. Here's how it starts. It feels like this. Then it goes to here. I'm, I'm talking about the arc. Mm-hmm. I'm basically just feeding back that I read the script you actually sent me. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt deeply for it. Yeah. Right. And here's why. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then you want to go into all these. I mean, you can read a million things online that coach you on like ways to talk about tone and ways to talk about comparisons. And but ultimately I think. I guess deeper than that, what you're doing is is sort of saying, I really know how I would make this. And you're finding clear ways to communicate that so that they can go, oh, wow, I really, really see her version. I really see her movie. Mm. Is it the movie I want to make in finance? Mm-hmm. And you can't control, you know, because what I think otherwise the risk is I sold a vision of a movie that I don't really deeply yeah. feel. Right. And they bought it and now I have to make it. Right. And I'm actually kind of disconnected. Right. Now maybe you could then like pour yourself into that version. But you're sort of reverse engineering if it happens that way. If you sell the thing you thought they wanted and now you're responsible for delivering it, you know. So that's the broad strokes. I mean, you know, tone are all the pieces of a pitch. I visuals. was in a lucky position of getting to hang out with you right before you pitched uh, the L word and um, and reflected back some of the things I was hearing, which was honestly a gift for me. It was great for me. What stands out is you were struggling with how to sort of find your way into talking about this version compared oh, yeah. to the last version of the L word, which had had an impact on you, but you weren't sure how to talk about it except to say that it was great, basically. Yeah. The personal piece is hard, actually. Yeah. To, to take I mean, the, right without kind of going off on some personal And tangent. how do we tell our story is something that comes up, especially when I'm working with politicians. Yeah. How do we put the I into it without feeling like we're A, bragging or B, boring people with our personal lives? I sometimes would say, I don't know where to stop or start. Like there's so much, there feels like too much. Right. And I asked you one pointed question that was like, literally, where were you when you watched the first version of the L word? And you 
your one sentence response brought in that you were abroad, brought in that you were in film school, and brought in that you didn't know you were gay yet, but that you saw something on that screen that made you think, I want that life. So it ended up being, I mean, your, you know, sort of quick response to me ended up being the story. That's right. That's true. And you helped me see that. I didn't know how to talk about all that stuff. And it also felt, you know, the personal has to be part of our our pitch and our story as an artist. It, it just is. You have to find a way of weaving it in yeah. for yourself, too. And that's a hard place for me. Definitely. Definitely. I, I can default to like, well, I'm just going to do a good job and you're not going to know I have feelings. Yep. 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 <laughs> you're not going to know I'm a person. I'm a robot. I'm really creative. I'm a creative robot. But you can turn me on and turn me off. That's right. That's right. And I will not emotionally, because li- I, I, I'm so afraid of being emotionally burdensome to mm. someone. I think, Ooh, you know what I mean? Thing. Yep. I think that's, that's uh, a fear women have sometimes of just being that the, that that won't help them to yeah. bring those in to the room. Yeah, for sure. And they don't, they often don't help them. <laughs> I know from being the boss and receiving. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, you have to be so careful. I think when you, when you bring in personal stuff to your work environment, Yeah. you know, I think that especially in film, it's such an intimate, it's such an intimate setting, you know, ba- there just, there do have to be boundaries. Yeah. So it's learning how to use your story and your, which contains emotion, you know, but direct but it channeling and it. channel it into your work in a way that remains professional Yeah. and powerful. Speaking of personal, what did it feel like to work on the L word specifically? I mean, I think we're still, it's just, we're talking about representation. Yeah. And we're talking about the screen as a mirror. And we're talking about how when we see ourselves represented, we like ourselves better. We yeah. can respect ourselves more. So I think the push to represent as many types of people as possible. And I think this is happening at every you know, uh, people who aren't size six, Mm -hmm. people of color, Mm -hmm. people uh, who identify as in a a range of gender identities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it is a push for representation that we're all talking about. And And that that representation used to mean like in the 90s when we were watching it. Right. Representation meant literally one person who looks that way, check yeah. Right. And now we're talking about the nuance of actual lived experience. For me, and for me, that's perspective. And who makes that show? Whose voice is that show? Yeah. Whose voice who's is telling that the story? Stories. Who's telling that story? Is is that story authentically from the person who should be telling that story and representing that character? And did you have any stuff during L Word specifically when you were like, well, that doesn't ring true or that doesn't feel right? I was, I had more moments of like, oh my God, that's so true. <laughs> you know, holy shit. Oh God. I, I felt like that. Like I've, I'm not... Uh, I felt like all the ways that culture had never shown me back some things that I felt. I feel a real sense of gratitude for being involved, for exposing me to myself more, to parts of myself I may have hidden from myself. And I I do wonder, I think, like, what would it have been like to see that as a 13-year-old, 15-year-old? Okay, we're going to be back in just a minute with the person Steph has brought in for us to hear. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. 
Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hey, everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss. A common mistake that a lot of people do, they use fabric softener when it's not so great for your clothes. Should we never be using fabric softener? No, you should not ever be using fabric softener. It leaves a deposit on our clothes, which is also left in the machine. And it also makes the clothes highly flammable. Wait, what? (laughs) Yes. What you want to do instead is just use a quarter cup of vinegar. And that'll make them softer? That'll make them softer. And if you wanted some kind of scent, you can use essential oils. Wow, wow, wow. Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Okay, we are back with Steph, and we're going to find out whose voice she brought in for us. Steph, who have you been thinking about? When you asked this question, I immediately thought of Maya Angelou. I cannot think of a voice I'd rather listen to. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have a a beautiful clip from her. I could have chosen earlier in her life. She has this absolutely stunning performance on YouTube of her Still I Rise Mm. poem, uh, which everybody should check out. I'll link to it. But you specifically pointed me towards an interview she did later in her life. uh, And we're going to listen to a little tiny bit of it right now. I learned by the time I was eight that I loved the human voice. I loved it. The actual sound of the voice speaking words just means the earth to me, still does. Singing, spoken, they help us to distinguish ourselves from each other and with each other and help us to know where we really are on this wayward floating moat of matter in the universe. I'm going to cry. Like every time. I mean, she's absolutely stunning. When I listen to... Dr. Maya Angelou. I found out it's called, it's, she, she pronounced it Angelo ah, in, this, thank you. in this piece. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a lesson for all of us. Um, when I think about her, I think about this thing I've said for years that your voice reflects your life experience, which, you know, I say because it's true, but we, when we listen to somebody, especially in the later part of their life, talking like this, you know, what we hear in her voice, everything from her accent which, you know, surely shifted throughout her life and is 
surely a collection of everywhere that she's lived, including, you know, she spent some time in Egypt and Ghana. And that doesn't necessarily even mean that you pick up the accent of those places as much as you go through the experience of needing to be understood in a foreign land and what that is to realize that the words that you're saying require, a, you know, a, a heightened level of communication to make, make sure that you're not misunderstood um, when the culture is so different. And then obviously there's this pace that she has that we can all learn from that not only suggests a lack of ums and a general appreciation of language, which I'm going to talk about as well, but also a real sense that I'm trying to do it myself now, I'm noticing, <laughs> a real sense that the way that her authority comes out is in knowing that she has the floor. And that is something that most of us are still grappling with. And part of the reason I was looking back, actually, at the Still I Rise poem is it's from a lot longer ago, that performance of hers. And I wanted to find, it's hard to find on YouTube, but it, I wanted to find something from even much, much, much earlier. But, you know, she she's a PhD. She's She's been in positions of power for a very long time, or she was rather by the time she died. And so I wonder what, you know, the experience was of getting there. But but when we all got to know her internationally, she already was at the point where, you know, clearly in every example we have, she doesn't use ums. And in, uh, the reason we do ums is because we're saying, I'm still collecting my thought and please let me keep the floor. And so then the other half of it, which, you know, you and I were talking about in the break is the content of what she's saying here is her love of language, but that also comes out in the form. And the fact that every single word feels like it's unwasted and is done justice, right? And for someone to have come up through, you know, the, the levels of trauma that she did and to have gotten to that point, I think is part of what people respond to in her. So just the act of like opening her mouth and talking Besides what's coming out, the act of the way that she talks makes people say, maybe I can do that too. Maybe I can get to that point. And we hear all of that in her voice. What do you think? Is that why it sounds, it's like, it feels like every time she speaks, it's, it's speech, it's a poem, <laughs> it's a song, mm -hmm. it's a, it's has rhythm, mm -hmm. it has power. I think pace is, it's so true. There's a confidence. Yeah. Yeah. And now I mean, I'm trying not to use ums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just let myself pause. Uh, at ease, Steph. At ease. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, all we, the word aspirational doesn't even yeah, cover this. Completely. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting lesson because, you know, it is earned. Absolutely. For her. And prior to that, I'm sure it didn't feel that way. I mean, I'm, God, I wish I could ask her about she talks a lot about uh, publicly, or I have to put this in past tense, which is very depressing. She spoke publicly a lot about the fact that she didn't talk for five years mm -hmm. in her youth. Yeah, and, and read voraciously right. throughout. But, but And what that was to come out of her self-imposed silence and what version of her, you know, was, was l alive then compared to this version of her that we— that we, you know, have captured much more. And that makes me think about listening as how she partially, how she learned mm. to speak, you know, yeah. because it, reading constantly and listening constantly for five years, you know. Completely. And yeah, I said in an earlier podcast that the other half of permission to speak is permission to listen. Right. Or permission to be quiet. Right. Permission to be quiet. 
Because yeah. I guess there's a feeling that, I think you're so right, that like, please let me keep the floor. Please, please hear me. Please see me. There can be a desperation in that that actually drains your power. And she talks all about, I mean, courage comes up. Courage to not talk yeah. all the time. Yeah. Courage. I mean, also uh, in public speaking, like in a, in a more technical way, this comes up as the power of the pause, mm. which is also another way of saying don't use um so much. Right. But the power of the pause is something that it's hard. You have to practice. And you have to practice knowing that that one thing you just said is going to land well mm. enough that you don't have to fill in the, the, the pause that's about to ensue with uh, a try again and a try again and a try again. Mm. That's hard. And also, part of what's hard about it is the courage part of it. The other part is that it may not be the case. You may actually need to rephrase what you just said because it didn't land. And you may be actually picking up with like your spidey sense that the audience isn't with you. Right. So it's not like the pause is always the right answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if we never use it, we'll never know. How do I, how do, if I said I want to, you know, there's my, you know, mm-hmm. I want to just cultivate stronger qualities in my speaking, pausing, listening. How do I be like Maya? <laughs> not um, You know, have her life experience. No, what you're really, what, what we're really saying, what I'm, what I, my real answer is you must sound like Steph. You must sound mm. like the strongest and most love yourself version of Steph. And right. that is for all of us, obviously. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But my other aunts, because there really wasn't a Maya before Maya, you know. I, th- there, there's no, there's no, no, no one even close. No, but also, yeah. but also that she probably didn't have the perfect, uh, you know, archetype to emulate. And that just wasn't the point. And she said, you, I'm going to probably butcher this, but um, you can't do better till you know better. Right, right. About her own evolution and right. Change and which has now become like an Oprahism because I think she said it to Oprah and Oprah was like, "Well, that's a good one." <laughs> She's a huge inspiration to Oprah. Yeah, who is know. you know such an inspiration to so many. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there you go. I mean, and and also really, you know, um, I'm sure that there were uh, there there clearly were people in Maya's life who were those you know archetypes of power to her. She talks about her grandmother. She talks about her <laughs> uncle Mother, Willie. Yeah. I imagine it was not in a way where where what she thought was, I want to sound like them. No. I think it was really, I want to sound like the most like profound version of myself. Exactly. And the other half of your question mm. is for people who do want to work on what it would be like to um less. Yeah. Um, or fill in the blank. Oh, I mean, me it doesn't code. have to be um. It, okay. it can be, a, you know, or it can be, uh, not just a, a tick of phrase, but like a way that we continue to fill in silence. I think the best thing, there is two things. One, uh, acknowledge that there's going to be an element of self-consciousness going into this. You cannot avoid that. And self-consciousness does not have to equal paraly- paralyzation. A, so just just know that for yourself. B, um, record yourself and Ugh. listen back. And no one likes, to, uh, look, you know, disclaimer, no one likes to listen to the sound of their voice. And that's like a culturally agreed upon thing. I'd love to change it. I'd love everyone to just decide, <laughs> maybe I do. Maybe it's just a learning tool. Maybe it's just, you know, it's one of the things like the way my hands l- work that is a communication unit and I should and I should embrace it. But I, w- I just want to say that when we listen back to ourselves, we can start to notice what those things are and maybe even say the same phrase that we said when we were making that recording for ourselves telling, you know, some story or telling something about our past and try saying the same thing, but without the 
in between sounds and just feel that discomfort because getting better at not saying um is about getting better with feeling that discomfort and not doing anything about it. That is such good advice. And we all can do that now with our iPhone. Um, for sure. Voice pres- memo is like yeah. the, the app that shows up on everybody's Apple phone, regardless of if you want it. Because is- how often do you speak to people and say, do they know what they sound like? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, do I know what I sound like? Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, you know, talk to friends, get reflections from people, work with a voice coach, whatever. But the stuff that that we can feel empowered to do on our own, there is just that little hurdle over the top of the self-consciousness aspect of it and the, you know, opinions that are going to come up about your own voice. But if you're serious about, you know, wanting to evolve your voice in some way, like, let's be honest, those are things we can handle. They will feel icky. Light a candle. <sighs> trust yourself. Know that, like, you know, we all, this is like such a universal that our voice feels different. It our voice sounds different on the outside than it sounds in our own head. That is anatomy, you know? I mean, how many people listen to their own voicemail message, you know, 12 times before yeah. they stick with one? Yeah, yeah. And then end up with one that doesn't sound anything like us because we're like, this one sounds the most like somebody that I would want to hear. I know. Hello. You've reached <laughs> Steph Green. <laughs> I don't know what business you are promoting with that, Yeah, that sounded but wrong. It feels... But you're so right. Sometimes you hear people's voicemail and you go, that sounds nothing like I them. I think I might be guilty of that now that we're saying this. I should go back and listen and, and record like the most authentic version of my voice. The most profound, yeah. quote unquote, Samara, stand up for yourself version of your voice. It's, it, is a, it is a thing. It is a thing. <laughs> Steph, thank you for bringing in Dr. Maya Angelou. Thank you for teaching me more about her incredible voice. Oh my God. I'm always happy to think about her. Thank you. Thank you to Steph Green for coming in. You can find out more about her in the show notes or on our website, permissiontospeakpod.com, where you can also go right now and send me any questions you have about your own voice, any feedback from these episodes, anything that doesn't make sense or doesn't feel like it fits for you. Anything that's coming up during this bizarro quarantine time in terms of using Zoom or, you know, Instagram Live or any any sources that you're using for getting your own voice out there, let's talk. We're going to do a mailbag episode coming right up, and I want to answer as many questions as I can about what's really going on with you, with your voice, with your sense of power, and how all those things interconnect because uh, we need good people in power now, guys, (laughs) like right now. Also, feel free to send DMs or voice memos to our Instagram at Permission to Speak Pod, where we're posting uh, a bunch of content and please join the community. Thanks as well to Sophie Lichterman and the team at iHeartRadio, to Megan Reed, to my family and cohort, and to all of you. We are recording this podcast in the iHeartRadio studios in Hollywood on land that used to belong to the Tongva Indigenous Tribe, and you can visit usdac.us to learn more about honoring Native land. Permission to Speak is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Vision, executive produced by Catherine Burt Canton and Mark Canton. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward.
Don't Drive Distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff.